The movie shall remain nameless because I'm giving away the ending. But you can ask me later if you really want to know. When the hero and the heroine met, they were enemies at best. But the viewer was drawn in as their adventures led them to depend on each other and then eventually love each other. As the bad guys were shot or chased away, the blissful and relieved couple were embracing on a dock, and the viewer was lulled into believing in this happy ending when a shot rang out. The heroine convulsed and fell off the dock into the deep lake. The hero dove in after her, of course, going underwater and coming up for air multiple times, crying out her name, and then later on the shore, simply crying. When Brian and I started watching this movie, we didn't know it would be a tragedy. Things had been going so well, but the hidden and fallen bad guy got in the last shot at the heroine, and the lake was too deep. We were led not to expect an epilogue, just like Mary, Peter, and the other disciples. The week before, Jesus entered Jerusalem as a triumphant conqueror, except for the fact that he was riding a donkey instead of a mighty war horse. And Jesus had warned them that he would suffer and be killed. But that was unfathomable to them until Friday, when the story had come to a dreadful conclusion. The women had seen their dear friend Jesus die a torturous death on Friday, and then watched as Joseph of Arimathea retrieved the lifeless body and laid it in a cave-like tomb. How could they expect an epilogue? Jewish law kept them from anointing their friend's body with traditional spices on the Sabbath, and so the women waited until Saturday evening after sundown, bought the necessary spices, and early the next morning, the third day, they went to the tomb and confronted their first mystery. Tombs at that time were cut out of a rock, like a man-made cave, and a gutter provided a path for a large stone to be rolled across the entrance. Having wondered how they would move the gigantic stone on their own, they were surprised to find that it had been rolled back already. Things that make you go, hmm. The tomb was open, foreshadowing the openness that Peter and others would experience. We'll get to that later. Continuing on their mission, the three women entered the tomb to locate Jesus' body on an inside niche, but instead of Jesus, they encounter a different messenger from God, a young man dressed in white who pointlessly tells them not to be alarmed, as if they could help it. That's like a college student telling her parents that she's going skydiving over the weekend. Don't worry, she tells them. I'll have four hours of instruction and beforehand and two parachutes when I jump, but the parents can't help but worry. Our emotions refuse to be controlled by logic. The messenger knew that the women were looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. 
He has been raised, he said. He is not here in this tomb for dead people. Look, here is the place where they had laid him. And then comes the commission to the women. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now why did the messenger say, tell his disciples and Peter? Peter was one of the disciples. Was it because Peter was the one who had denied out loud that he knew Jesus and so was feeling the most ashamed? The news shocks the women, and like any time we are scared, their fear elicits that fight-or-flight response. Had they chosen to stay and fight, they might have retrieved more information. But even though it would have been three against one, they knew better than to scrap with an angel. The women chose flight, and they fled from the tomb in silent terror and amazement. Sometimes, just as our emotions refuse to be controlled by logic, our faith refuses to be controlled by logic. Welton Gaddy a progressive Baptist pastor, I know sometimes those words don't go together, but in this case they do, a progressive Baptist pastor in Louisiana says this about the first Easter. On the Sunday immediately after the Friday on which Jesus died, God acts. How? I don't know. Precisely what happened? I haven't the faintest idea. I am totally inept at describing mystery. But God acted, setting in motion the most dramatic reversal imaginable. God offered to love people filled with hatred, extended an offer of healing to people who had demonstrated a preference for inflicting hurt, invited into relationship individuals who had indicated a desire to go it alone, to the very persons who opted for an existence best described as hell, God presented the gift of eternal life. Resurrection. Now, while we cannot tell ourselves how to feel, some emotions elicited this day might be deep relief that God has delivered us from the pit of hatred and judgment and raised us to the level of love. We might feel deep gratitude that even when life stinks, we do not bear the stench alone. We might feel deep hope that even if we've been in a rut for years, new life is possible. Despite all that logic tells us, and despite our skepticism about the unseen, God has transformed death into life, transformed rejection into acceptance and forgiveness, transformed fear into joy. Back to the women at the tomb. They weren't there yet. The messenger had told them that Jesus had been raised and to go and tell others that he would meet them in Galilee, and yet they were dumbfounded in fear terror, amazement, and silence, and so they fled. 
And certainly we feel the same way sometimes. We can't fully grasp the good news, and so we run away. And this first, chapter 16, verse 8, is where the earliest manuscripts of Mark's gospel end. The future of the Christian revolutionary movement is unknown at this time. The women have simply fled. And while we have a freeze-frame image of the backs of those women as they run away, we know that terror and silent fear are not the end of the story. They had to break their silence to begin telling others what millions of Christians know today. Christ is risen. Otherwise, how would Peter have known? Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, is a great model for us. Today's reading from Acts 10 is just a portion of this great story. It's one of my favorites. The background is that Peter had, been, had experienced a vision in which something like a sheet came down, and on that sheet were animals that Jews thought were unclean. They could not be eaten. And Peter heard a voice that said, What I have pronounced clean, do not make unclean. And that happened three times. And shortly after that happened, there were some men who came. They were sent by Cornelius, a non-Jew, a Roman centurion. And he had had a nudge from the Holy Spirit to send for this man named Peter. And so Peter went with him, even though he wasn't supposed to. Because Peter was Jewish and this guy wasn't. But he felt that nudge of the Holy Spirit too. And they went together and arrived at the home of Cornelius. And Cornelius invited him to teach him, his relatives and close friends, whatever the Lord instructed him to say. And that's what we heard in his short sermon today. In that sermon, Peter admits that he was wrong. And he proclaims that now he understands that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Wow. In every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to God. Peter understands now that Jesus' peace is for all the nations, for everyone, and that he is Lord of all people, whether they know it or not. The movie I mentioned at the beginning had several reversals. The heroine was shot, the hero grieved, but then came the epilogue with the words across the bottom of the screen. Four months later, the hero is dressed in a military uniform at a train station, holding a note to meet someone at the clock at noon. The heroine's brother arrives and quietly directs the hero's gaze across the platform where the love of his life stands gazing at him. And then the movie draws to a close. It ended with a reversal. Another one. But today... Our story, the gospel story, starts with a reversal. Death is transformed into life. 
In Peter's life, there's a reversal. Exclusion is transformed into inclusion because God shows no partiality. And as Peter says, who am I that I should hinder God? Who are we that we should hinder God? Have we been changed, transformed like Peter was? Has the tomb opened for us as well? Perhaps a better question is, how do we need to be changed? What can we and God transform together? Our own lives? The life of our church? Our community? Yes, yes, and yes. When we invite God to tear open the shades that darken our hearts, like the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, we invite connection with God and transformation with God. Though the earliest manuscripts of Mark's gospel end with fear and silence and running away, writers later added both a short ending and a longer ending. They wanted some closure. They didn't want to leave it all that open-ended, but I kind of like that open-ended ending to the gospel. It reminds us that transformation is possible, that new life is possible, always. And so even if we go from this sanctuary this celebration in silence and uncertainty about what Easter means to us, we also can go with a prayer to God of opening our hearts to transformation and resurrection. Or perhaps that should be resurrection and transformation. We go, even in fear and amazement and awe, And we follow the instructions of that white-clad messenger. Go and tell. Christ is risen. Phillips Brooks has this short poem. Tomb, thou shalt not hold him longer. Death is strong, but life is stronger. Stronger than the dark, the light. Stronger than the wrong, the right. Faith and hope triumphant say Christ will rise on Easter day. Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. Let us pray. For beauty, for joy, for community, and for hope, we give you thanks, God of the world and God of our lives. Amen.